we put this strain on ourselves about the past and the future. Like we can't change the past. We can't predict the future. We have to live in the present. And it's never too late to do something that you want to do. Like sometimes people are like, I don't have enough time. Like you don't know that. I mean, nobody knows that. I mean, no. the, the hardest thing in most journeys is the first step. Just the first step. Just get started. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation, and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast. Before I introduce this week's guest, I want to ask you to please leave a review so I can give you a shout out on the show. It also helps other people find the show. So thank you in advance. All right. This afternoon, I am sitting here with Jose Solis, host of Energy Scale-Ups and a core team member of the Oil and Gas Global Network and also Army veteran. Thank you for your service, Jose. How are you doing this afternoon? Hey, how's it going, Paige? I'm all right. Just fighting this lovely cedar pollen that's flowing around in the air. Yeah. You know, the one thing about Houston, for sure, Houston, the surrounding areas, is that if you don't like the weather, just wait a minute. It's going to change. And then with those changes comes all kinds of allergies and all the stuff that comes along with that. Yeah. It's just bipolar. And one way or another, you're going to get a little sick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's probably not coronavirus. It's probably just Texas allergies. Yeah. I'm afraid to even get a cold these days. You know what I mean? Oh, I know. I know. I know. There's been so many people infected with the Omicron variant. I just, yeah, I'm just, I've been hanging out at home and ordering stuff online. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's the beauty. After all these, you know, I say all these years, after the last couple, 18, it feels like a million years. Yeah. But after, you know, last couple of years, we've really learned how to just kind of make do with being at home. I mean, we've got movies that go directly. They don't even go to the, or they'll simultaneously stream and right. go to the theaters at the same time. I mean, you've got every delivery service you can think of. I mean, if you really don't want to leave your house, I mean, even alcohol, they will bring a six pack or 24 pack or a case of beer to your house. I almost feel like I'm back in Louisiana, man. That's how easy it is to get alcohol. <laughs> yeah. It's right. not like going to the convenience store like we used to be able to do and just buying something at the gas station. Yeah. I mean, so anything you need, I mean, just about anything you need, they can deliver to your house now. Yeah. It's pretty convenient. It is very, I mean, I mean, one of the things I love to do, but I don't get to do it that often because I'm busy is go to the grocery store, but luckily HEB delivers. And I mean, like sometimes it's same day service. Oh yeah. Yeah. Super convenient. But I guess we should probably should get into why we're really here, right? Because I can talk about delivery and all day long. Jose, let's talk about how you began in the oil and gas industry. Yeah. So, you know, I was really fortunate to get my start in the field. So I started working offshore for oceaneering as an inspector. Well, really, I mean, just kind of like as a helper, I was a hand really when I first started and I would go out there and we would do these topside inspections on platforms in the Gulf of Mexico that were on the continental shelf. So, you know, everything that had legs that was connected to the ocean floor, we would go out there on this little crew boat, like this little hundred foot crew boat. And we would go and we would, you know, go from one to, to the next. And we would be out there for weeks at a time. 
And we would take these, what are called cathartic protection readings, which is basically the anti-corrosion readings are the corrosion systems of the corrosive resistance, really, of the system that lies underneath the platform in the water. Because obviously, Gulf Mexico, salt water, it's very corrosive. Yeah. They're trying to preserve those platforms for as long as possible. And so we would do these inspections, which were required. They were they were mandated inspections. and Oh, different- yeah, because Bessie will show up and do the same inspection. Exactly. exactly. And so we would do that. And then from there, I sort of progressed along and ended up getting an opportunity to work onshore and really getting more into the downhole side of the business, the upstream side of the business, where I would go out to the shops like the Weatherford's or Halliburton's Bakers and Schlumberger's. And I would actually witness and verify the inspection assembly testing of downhole drilling tools. So, Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So I got to see the mud motors and all this stuff put together and, you know, all the drill pipe. I mean, there was even parts where we would go watch manufacturing of like drill pipe casing, you know, all this stuff, tubing, and we would help. So the company I worked for actually developed the standard and, and stewarded the standard with the help of the industry for drill stem design, inspection, manufacturing, the whole nine. I mean, not just for downhole drilling tools, but for also you know specialty equipment as well and, and casing. What kind of certifications do you need to be an inspector like that? So it depends. If you're actually doing like the non-destructive testing, then you have to have those NDT certs, right? So if you're actually out there you know, if you're doing the black light inspection, if you're doing the EMI inspection, the ultrasonic inspection, then you have to have those certifications. We were trained in all of those methods of inspection and we received company certifications on those inspections. But what we right. were really what we were really trained in was quality assurance, quality control. So we were making sure that when those pieces of equipment were being inspected on behalf, so let's say for instance, let's use Exxon as an example. So Exxon says, hey, you know, company, we want to hire you to be our eyes and ears on the shop floor. And we want to make sure that what we're paying for, we're getting. And we also want to make sure that, you know, this equipment is put together correctly. It's tested correctly to the standard. And we would just make sure that it was being followed to the letter of the law. And what that would do is it would decrease the potential for non-productive time that happens whenever those tools fail downhole. So we were trying to reduce failures downhole for operators. And so an operator might start to experience, let's say, a rash of failures. They're saying, you know, we're having all these failures, you know, we're drilling all these wells and it's costing us all this MPT. And of course, they'll have some, you know, drilling engineer or an intern basically run all the all the data and say, look, it's costing us X amount of time, X amount of dollars. And they can do that math pretty simple. And they figure out like, okay, we need to get this fixed. And so my job would go out, would be to go out there make sure that it's being done correctly. And the company that I worked for was privately held at the time. And it was, you know, it was about a medium sized business. And, you know, actually it went from, you know, being like a, what I would say it was a 30 year old company, I believe when I joined them and, you know, the people that I was working with had been there for almost half. Some of the people that I was working with had been there for almost half the time. So by 15 years. So the company had grown tremendously. And, you know, I was able to move roles within that company because, you know, people would see the abilities that I had and sort of saw the work, like the reports that I would send in from the field. And they say, you know, I think he's, you know, I think he might actually be pretty smart. Let's bring him in here and let's see what else we can do with him. And so I had an opportunity to do more like technical recruiting. And then I got into business development. And that's where I spent the majority of my time as an account manager, account representative for the company. And I would actually go 
And I would talk to all of the operators and I would make sure that they were a understanding what our services were. And I would make sure that they understand why they needed them and, and how we could, you know, help their operations. And then, you know, really just take care of those accounts, but also grow into new business. So let's say if somebody was interested in having our company provide services, I would go and I would talk to them. I would sort of diagnose what they have going on and I would say, okay, here's what we can do. And just, you know, managing those expectations and maintaining those relationships. And along the way, I just, you know, had all these great opportunities present themselves. So that company went through an acquisition and we went through, it was a two-year acquisition process. And so the CFO had ended up moving to another company. He and I reconnected after some time and he said, hey, you know, I've got this opportunity. It's It's a young company. It's like two or three years old. When he presented it to me, he said, look, you know, we've got a private equity company backing us, you know, so we've got some money, we've got a great product and I'd like you to come and help us, you know, build our book of business in West Texas. And I said, sure, no problem. So I joined the company and we were able to start bringing in new business, building up the book of business. And that company got acquired within a year about time frame from me being there. And so, oh, wow, we, yeah, we went through an acquisition and so, you know, It was really interesting. It was really fast paced, but it was a lot different than the first one that I'd went through, which was a two-year one. This was more of just like one day change to the next. And it was really turbulent, but it was really crazy and it was a lot of fun. But I had promised myself that, you know, if I do this again, then, you know, I'm not going to have to sit for the next two years and do the whole handover. And so I didn't do that. And so I ended up going and joining up forces again with two people that I had worked for, a project manager and an engineer at that third-party QAQC company. And they had recruited me to come help them with a company that was about 15 years old and it was based in the UK and they had a hub here in Houston and another one in the Middle East. And again, they were, you know, trying to build up their book of business in different markets. So I signed on with them as an account manager and was quickly moved into the vice president of sales role to help develop the sales team, sales processes and get them you know, at a place where they could really start to utilize, you know, most of their abilities and and tools and and what we had available to us. And so we were, you know, getting into not just doing business like in the US, but we were doing business in Mexico, in Guyana, in Trinidad, and in Colombia, in Canada, and then all the way out to Alaska as well. And so we're really starting to expand the book of business and not just by going and providing tools in those areas, but also building relationships with other businesses in those areas so that we could use them as agents so that we didn't have to necessarily have a facility there. We would build a relationship with a local agent who maybe had a local facility where we could send tools, have them service. So if we needed to send a technician out there or an engineer to have them service, we could do that. And so we were just really expanding our business. And then about another 18 months into that project, the company was acquired. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was like the third time was the charm. And so, you know, after those three, you know, opportunities and acquisitions and those experiences, you know, I decided, you know, like, okay, you know what? I think now is a good time for me to to kind of take a step back, look at the playing field. And that was at the beginning of 2020. And Oof. then, yeah, then the pandemic hit and I was like, okay, I think the universe is telling me something. So, I've continued to to work on some personal projects and as well as, you know, develop this podcast, the Energy Scales podcast with OGGN. So I've been really working on that full time. You know, like I said, some other stuff that I have going on, but really it's just been, you know, it's just been an amazing journey. And, you know, I really have had a lot of great opportunities to just 
being at the right place at the right time all the time. Yeah. It's kind of strange, you know? Yeah. It's really strange. I'm like a luck box. Yeah. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> almost. Which is way better than Pandora's box, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So which did you prefer more, the inspections offshore or onshore? Definitely onshore because at the time offshore, we didn't have as much communication. And most of the time offshore, I mean, you're you're staying offshore. You're gone for a while. You, you know, unfortunately. Not only that, but I mean, you got to ride a boat if it's if it's close enough. So we would either take a helicopter or ride right. a boat. And I always yep. preferred a helicopter to a boat. But Yep, me too. <laughs> but, but sometimes if you got to take the boat, you got to take the boat. And the fun thing about being on the boat sometimes is like I would go work with, let's say, a team of underwater divers, inspection divers and construction divers. And sometimes on the way out and the way in, we would just have these long poker sessions. And so we would play poker. <laughs> and it was fun. And so I can say this now, but what I used to do is I planned it out. And so what I would do is because the <laughs> because I knew the the guy that dive, he was like the dive manager, you know, the lead diver, or not the lead yeah. diver, but the dive manager basically. He was the one that was responsible for the pretty much the entirety of the operation. He would sign my field ticket. So I would lose a lot of money to him. And I would make sure oh, I man. Lose, lose money to him so that he would sign all my tickets. <laughs> <laughs> That's messed up, man. Well, I mean, I wasn't <laughs> padding the tickets, but, you know, right. some of them were kind of long and they would, you know, they would hoot and holler and give me grief about it. But, you know, in order to make that a little bit easier, I'd lose a little bit of money to him. And I say a lot of money, a lot of money to me at the time was like a hundred bucks. But, you know, I mean, like I would just lose money to him and, you know, just kind of get in his good graces and because what would happen is not only would they sign my tickets, but then they would request me specifically to come back. And oh, that's so cool. I would just made sure to build those relationships, which is, you know, it's an important part of our business, right? Building relationships. So I knew like, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't bribing the guy. I was just, I was just figuring out like, okay, if, you know, if I, if I lose a few hands and I wouldn't, I mean, I wasn't purposely like always folding, but sometimes I folded a good hand or I wouldn't, I wouldn't make him work for it as hard, if you will. Or I wouldn't bluff as hard at something, but you know, I would just build those relationships and I would be fun and I would be cordial and you know, I would just get in there in, in the good side. Cause a lot of times as the non-diver personnel on the ship, you know, you're that one person they're like, okay, we got to have this guy here to basically, you know, tell us where to go and what to do and record all of our data. So, you know, like they could easily have just assigned one of the divers to do my job, but they just would hire me specifically to come out there and do it because they well, like that's me. cool. Yeah. So it was just sort of one of those things where, you, you know, in the industry, you always want to build your relationships and, and make friends. And, you know, it was like the start. So I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to be on anybody's bucket or you know, on their, on their crap list. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. No, I totally so get it. <laughs> it was a good time, but I, I liked being onshore more because I could usually get home most nights. Obviously communications were a lot easier, I didn't have to sleep in a stinky, you know, bunk room. I could have a hotel with, you know, decent meals. It was really funny because offshore, you know, at the time, this was before they instituted the Twit card. The Twit card really started to cut down on the amount of people that could go offshore that had, you know, criminal records and things like that. So before, you know, it was kind of just like, it was just, I mean, it was a free for all. There was a time where I was on the way to the boat and they said, hey, stop somewhere for a couple of hours. You can't go to the boat yet. And I'm like, okay, well, no problem. Cause I'm, I'm all the way to Louisiana. So I just stop at like one of the casinos and just hang out at the you know, OTB and just bet on racehorses for a while. Right. And so that was not, not a problem for me. I said, sure. You don't have to tell me twice. I can wait. 
because I'm still getting paid anyway. So right. I finally get to the boat later that night and it comes to find out like they had arrested the boat captain and like the crew. They had arrested like the entire crew. Holy cow. Because, because they caught them selling fuel to a shrimp boat. And <laughs> <laughs> they that's, caught that's that's a little ridiculous, but I get well, it. I get but, it. But you know, I say that to emphasize like some some of the criminal element that you'd run across in the field offshore because there was no like the regulations just weren't there. Like they weren't making these people get twit cards and stuff like that. So it was a lot different back then. It was crazy. I'm sure it's was like was the now. was the regulation not there or just not enforced? No, it, it just so there was I don't think we started to need twit cards until maybe like a year or two after I started working offshore. Okay. So it was shortly after. But this yeah, was Yeah, because I remember when they implemented the extra certs to go offshore after Macondo. Yeah. So I did do like Hewitt training, offshore water survival. I did do all of those, but it wasn't until maybe like 2010 that they required you to have a Twit card. Okay. And so, you know, I had some time there where it was just like, like I said, they would bring people off like these workforce, you know, like workforce things, you know, like programs. I mean, there was a guy literally came on the boat. He was the galley hand. He came on the boat. And as we're underway to go offshore, he literally slept in like, one of the benches in the galley and didn't get up for maybe like 18 hours because he was detoxing. It was crazy. It was really crazy. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> it was really crazy. But I mean, those were some wild times. And, you know, I've heard of stories, you know, even as recently as, you know, 2016, 2017, where people have been busted offshore for some wild stuff. But I mean, you know, it is sometimes there's some, some things that happen to I me mean, in every industry. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to just necessarily be offshore oil and gas, but, and even in the field, like onshore, you meet an entire host of characters. I mean, you go to almost any drilling rig and you're going to meet some wild people. You know, there's been company men that have, have said some really, <laughs> they've said some really out of pocket things to me in the past, you know, that I've just kind of been shocked, you know, like really this guy just said that to me and, you know, it's kind of, Took it, at, you know, just kind of shrugged it off because, you know, I'm, I've been in the military. I'm not thin skinned, you know, I'm not going to cry. Right. But yeah. at the same time, like, you know, I'm almost just, I'm more entertained than I am mad that somebody would say, like, somebody would really have, you know, the audacity. Yeah, yeah. To say some, some wild stuff like that. Well, and I think a lot of that's changing, Jose. I think a lot of that's changing. I think we're starting to break the bias. Well, it's definitely changing. I think there's still some room for people to, you know, Oh, absolutely. Don't, don't be so thin-skinned all the time. And I think, you know, it's okay to, you know, I'm definitely, I think if you're in the oil and gas industry, you do really need, especially if you work in the field, like, you know, just don't take it so personally. Sometimes when people mess with you, it means they like you. you know? Yeah. You know, they're just hazing you because they like you. I'm just tired of people being so offended over something for someone else. Oh, that, see, that's still- I mean, that. we can get, we could really get into that, but I don't think we should, but- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, think it, I think that'll take up the entirety of but our, I don't think uh, you would really run into that too much in the field, maybe more in like the office settings. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. The, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of sensitivity training that goes on when you work in an office, especially the big companies, you know? Like yeah. You to, they do remind you like, you know, this is a safe space and we accept everybody and that's okay. You know, that's good. Yeah. I think we should be, you know, definitely should be open-minded to diversity and inclusion for sure. Oh, there's absolutely. Things, things that we definitely need. And it's good. There's some things that should change. I guess I just sort of, I'm a little bit older now and I sort of look back and I'm like, it was funny when people didn't get offended all the time. Like you could laugh at certain things and it would be okay. But I do understand like, you know, there's some things that 
definitely shouldn't be shouldn't be accepted anymore. This episode is sponsored by MLink. MLink builds custom e-learning content around your unique learning requirements to create a solution that works for you and your company and your goals with e-leading solutions that include mobile learning, gamification, motion graphic, and character animation, video services, instructor-led training, and performance stimulation with a proven track record of delivering projects on time with keen focus on quality attention to detail and customer service excellence. They've won 50 plus awards since their start in 1990, and they've worked with industry leading companies such as FedEx Office, Microsoft, Pizza Hut, to say the least. To learn more about MLink, go to mlinktech.com for more information. It's just like, let's all be adults here and just move along. Yeah, exactly. exactly. You know? And then there are times where things like need to be reported. Well, and you know why they have rules is because somebody along the lines, Mess things up for everybody else. <laughs> right, exactly. They pushed yeah. it too far. They just pushed it too far, you know? Like, okay. Right. Now, this yeah. is why we can't have a Christmas party, Todd. <laughs> this is yeah. why we can't have nice things. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> let's be adults. Yeah. Right, exactly. All right, so let's talk more about the Scale-Ups podcast. What does Scale-Up mean, and how does it differentiate from startup? Yeah, so, you know, when there is a little bit of overlap sometimes because startups can go to go on to become scale-ups. So a startup is essentially like a couple people get together or one person, you know, has this idea and they're like, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to start a business. I've got this idea for a product or service. And they might go out to what's called a venture capital firm and raise money, or they go to friends and family and raise money, or they have their own money and, or they go to a bank. And a lot of times banks aren't really into startups because they're risky. I mean, most startups do have, I mean, they're doomed to fail. Most of them. I mean, right. Exactly. So, but a scale up is usually a company that has already gone through the startup phase. They're starting to bring in more key hires. They're raising money. They probably have already gone through like their first round of funding and maybe they're getting like their second or maybe a bigger round of funding. Maybe they've got some angel investors already, but now they're going on to actually like raise money from like private equity groups or they're raising money from other groups. And they're starting to scale their business and they're adding, like I said, either, you know, they're starting to expand their footprint in their industry. They've already got a minimum viable product. They're adding key hires. So they might be adding, you know, like a a CFO or a COO or whoever, and it's, it's the C-suite's getting bigger, the leadership team's getting bigger, and people are starting to really spec- like get more specific in their roles. In a startup, people usually wear a lot of different hats, right? And they're doing a multiple things. So the CEO is probably also doing sales. He might be doing IT. You know, he or she might be doing all these different things, right? In a scale up, usually various the roles really start to become more specific, and they're growing. And again, they're they're bringing in more revenue, they're bringing in more money, and you know their products are already developed, and they've got a product market fit, and they know where they're going, and they've got some sense of like, okay, here's what the next five, ten year they call them roadmaps. This is what our roadmap looks like, and here's what we project. And so they're in that growth phase. They're they're looking to really you know, take their business, you know, up by, you know, multiples of two and four and six, you know, they're really trying to grow their business, which I mean, so would a startup, which is easier to do, obviously, you know, turning $1 into $2 versus turning a hundred into 200, it gets harder and harder, the bigger you get, 
So, you know, it's really interesting to see, but there are some cases where you do see a little bit of confusion about what startup, what scale up, and then, you know, there becomes a transition point. So there is a little bit of overlap there at times where a startup is transitioning to a scale up. And then there are times when you see a scale up, maybe they didn't execute their plan to the T or something happened and they've scaled back down more to like a startup size. And that happens sometimes, or they dissolve altogether. And sometimes that happens too, but it's a really volatile, it's really volatile time for a business during this, their startup phase. And they're trying to stabilize a little bit more in the scale up phase. All right. Yeah, no, that explains it. Yeah. I understand it better now. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of feel like that's what we're doing here right now with OGGN is we're, we're scaling. Yeah. So, and it which is great because yeah, it absolutely takes time because you gotta, you have to, you know, all collaborate together and go, what is the, what is the end game? Well, not necessarily the end game, but what are we really trying to accomplish here? Yeah. I think sometimes we're, a lot of people really love the idea of the startup world. And I don't think that they quite understand like, the volatility of it and the uncertainty of it and you know sort of the stress the risk is tremendous the risk is tremendous that as well but sometimes there's there's instances where a company grew too fast and it yeah sometimes the growth is way too quick and you know like there are times where there's people who are good for a startup environment that are not great for a scale-up environment and it's really tough because people have to understand that kind of quickly in order to avoid big time problems later on down the road. Well, let me ask you this. And I've, I've noticed this in a bunch of other companies I've watched in the past is as companies change or, or scale up or start up, the leadership changes because they're in a different part of the process, correct? Yeah. A lot of times, you know, having gone through a few acquisitions and seeing how some things have changed. So I, I sort of liken it to almost like this you know, like the Goldilocks story. First, I worked for a small private company that was 30 years old. Then I worked for one that was 15 years old. Then I worked, or excuse me, 30 years old, three years old, then 15 years old. And so it was like, wow, you know, I got to see sort of like where all of these companies were in their, in their cycles. And, you know, the differences in, you know, how, how things will, will turn out. But in most cases, especially if there's an acquisition, leadership is usually going to either be reassigned or move on or whatever it might be, especially owners, because they'll usually have some, you know, like, okay, you know, we've bought the company and you can either take another role or, you know, you can, you can leave the company altogether and, and they work those things out. But a lot of times what you will see is, you know, let's say, you know, a company goes from startup to scale up and then a little bit further beyond that. And you might see a change in certain roles and departments where people like, okay, you know, this person was our was our COO, and now they are not a COO for this company anymore because this didn't really fit. The environment wasn't really a good fit for them anymore because they didn't want to be in the enterprise culture. They wanted to be in the startup culture because the startup culture is a lot different than the enterprise culture. It's different than the corporate culture, right? So, you know, I think a lot of people understand, like when you work for a corporate company, just like we were talking about, you know, you probably can't go around saying and doing some of the things that you could do or say in a startup, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, and, and I'm not saying that it's it's bad or good. It's just a different environment, right? I mean, it's right. like saying, okay, you know, it's like being, and I don't want to liken it to a, a grade or anything like that. I just, or like in school, but it's, it's just a different environment. It's a different business culture. You, you become know. kind of bitter. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, that can't happen. Some people are that's that is their jam. Like they love being in corporate culture because they know there's a lot of consistency and stability and they know like okay, I'm not going to get hazed when I come to work today whereas you know, I'll tell you a quick story like there was a time when one of the project managers that I worked with at the quality assurance company, it was his birthday. So we put all of this Justin Bieber memorabilia and posters. <laughs> and all, I mean, we Biebered out his entire office. That's and, awesome. I mean, it wasn't like anything naughty or anything like that. But, you know, it was in a, a younger company, privately held company. Maybe we wouldn't have gotten away with that at a big corporate company, you know, maybe we would have gotten a little bit of a talking to or a hand slap at that. You know, yeah, but- no, we've, we, me and my colleagues foiled, we've literally foiled an entire person's office. He went to Disney world and we foiled every single thing in his office. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good time. I mean, and you know, like I said, sometimes I think people start to realize, especially as they come along in their career, they realize what environment works better for them. And some people they know like, Hey, look, this is a startup. I'm going to be here until X amount of time or until this size. And they know like once this happens, I'm going to move back to another startup or to this. Yeah, to that. let's start and again. Yeah, yeah. Know thyself, right? So if you know like I'm more of an enterprise person, I want to be more of a, you know, in a formal setting. I know like I don't want to have to stress over like are we going to, are we going to, you know, hit our numbers this quarter or whatever. I mean, well, every company stresses over that, but I don't want to worry about, you know, like are we going to be able to make payroll or all this? I mean, those are things that really happen in the startup world and people worry about that stuff. And if you yeah. don't want to worry about that stuff, then you probably are not well cut out for the startup world. Well, I mean, it's pretty rough out there. I mean, I've known people to take out mortgages, like a third mortgage just oh, to, yeah. to... Yeah, I mean, the thing of it is, is that you, I mean, you really have to put all your chips in the middle. It's like playing No Limit Texas Hold'em. I mean, if you're not, yeah. willing, if you're not willing to push all your chips in the middle, then you probably should go work for an enterprise company where, you know, that's not, that's not really what's at stake. That's more my jam. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some people just like, Hey man, look, I just want to make money. I want to have benefits. I want to have, you know, these things. And that's great. I support that. And there's definitely a place in the world for all of those people. Because at the end of the day, the thing that doesn't change between a startup, a scale up or an enterprise company is people. You need people. You need yep. people to run all of them. And everybody, I mean, there is a place for everybody in the business world. It is very much like, I would never say like, if you are a certain type of person, you shouldn't be in business. No, look, there's a place, there's a home for you somewhere. The business world is massive. Right. Yeah, definitely. So what is leadership to you? You know, when I think of leaders, I mean, having a prior military service background, I I think I'm a little bit of a leader snob in the sense that I want to be able to follow somebody or I want to be able to see someone that isn't just going to do as I say, not as I do type of person. Mm -hmm. But I mean, they're like, they're charging the hill, you know, front and center, they're leading the way. And, you know, they are, they're taking, you know, extreme ownership for everything that happens and they don't put the blame on anybody other than themselves when the team doesn't succeed, a leader takes the entire brunt of the weight and says, Nope, that's on me. I full responsibility. I take full responsibility. And, and I think maybe that's something that, you know, is left to be desired in some places at times. And I know that poor leadership, a lot of times people will say, you know, you don't quit jobs, you quit bosses, you know, it's because leadership. Boy, that hits home. (laughs) I mean, it's something that I think, 
you really have to take, especially with like the great resignation that's happening right now. I know, right? Leadership yeah. is so important. Like you have to be a good leader. And you, I mean, I should say you, but every, anybody, right? Any leader out there, any, every leader out there has to constantly, I think, be checking their true north and making sure like, am I doing the right things for my people? Am I putting my people? Because again, it all comes back to people. If you're going to be a leader, you know, a leader that has no followers is just going on a walk. So, you know, if you can't get people behind you to support your ideas, what your mission is, you're going to have a hard time with leadership. And to me, well, I, I think like, communication is like a huge part of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely it is. I think, you know, a good leader doesn't just communicate well, like doesn't just communicate everything, but communicates strategically. Effectively. Exactly. Strategically in a way that like, okay, look, there's some things that you probably don't need to tell your team because it's going to cause, you know, it's going to cause stress that they don't need, you know? There might be times where like, if I say this, there's going to be stress that's not needed. Like, I don't want to keep people up at night for no good reason. That just reminds me of being a parent, really. Yeah. You know, there's just some things that you don't tell your kids all the time. You know, it might be happening underground and and they just need to know nothing about it. And it's just, you know, it's going to be okay. But you know, like sometimes there's leaders that will say things just because they're just making conversation or they're sharing stuff. I think also mm-hmm. is learning to, you know, we talked about this a little bit, like inclusiveness, like learning how to not alienate people is really important because there are times when you know, leaders alienate people for whatever reason and it automatically like that person becomes super uncomfortable and they're like, you know, I don't want to be here anymore. And then they start losing their motivation. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's sad when that happens, but a good leader to me, like I said, they take complete ownership. They're really great at communicating. They understand they have like a high level of emotional intelligence and they're dedicated to learning as much as they can about whatever business and industry that they're in. They're constantly consuming industry information, business information. They're always sharpening their skills and they're open to learning from people who work for them and not that that's like a really important piece right there that especially in this industry there's no such thing as a, a know-it-all there's nobody that knows at all for sure for sure because the amount of change that our industry has taken on it's a constant change yeah i mean you could you could read 24 hours a day seven days a week and still not know everything there is to know about the industry yeah agreed yeah. So I think everybody just has to be, you know, like I said, learn as much as they can about what they do specifically in their industry and be that subject matter expert as best as they can. And I mean, it's leadership's not easy. And I think that's why not everybody's cut out for it. No, absolutely. You're absolutely right. So if you had one piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be? I would say, you know, like, <laughs> don't take yourself so seriously. Yeah. I like that. You know, don't take it to heart. Like, and also, like, you know, be okay with not knowing everything. And like I put a post up on LinkedIn today and it was pretty, it was like about comedy and about being funny, but I try to enjoy like a little bit of humor in my life because I mean, what's the point if you can't laugh, especially if yourself, you know what I mean? Like, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, don't, you know, it's, it's okay. I mean, as long as you wake up on the right side of the bed and you know, you're able to go home to your family and your family's okay, everything else is going to be fine. You know, yeah. it's going to be yeah. okay. You know, you live yeah. to fight another day. <laughs> right on. So what book influenced you the most and why? 
Ooh, there's a few books that I would say have given me a lot of influence. And I think that if I had to name one off the top of my head, it has to do with leadership. It's by Jocko Willink, Extreme Ownership. That's definitely one of them. There's another book by Robert Greene called Human Nature and Understanding Human Nature. He also wrote, there's another one like about leadership and about power and stuff like that, that it's really good. Let me see. Oh, another one that I thought was really interesting was Tim Ferriss's The 4-Hour Workweek. I mean, I don't think realistically anybody can work four hours, but it had really good insight as to, you know, just optimizing your life and understanding like your worst fears probably won't come true. And I thought that was pretty interesting. But those are like, when it comes to business, those are the ones that kind of stick out the most in the top. Yeah, I've heard of Jocko before. I've seen him on a couple shows. Yeah. Oh, there's others about culture and stuff like that. I can't think of them like the entrepreneurship roller coaster. That's a good one as well. But, you know, I would say those ones are the ones that really stick out in the top of my head. So what's your most used business tool? I have a couple ideas, but I want to hear it. Like digital tool or just anything you use for work, really business pen and and paper. That's really it. That's where you and I see eye to eye. (laughs) It's really just pen and paper for me. I'm pretty basic, but you know, it depends on what I'm trying to accomplish is, you know, like if I'm trying to, you know, build something or if I'm trying to like organize something, but most times it just starts and stops with pen and paper. I mean, if I don't write it down, I'll forget it. And so most of the times when people see me, I'll have something to write with and something to write on at most times. And I try and take notes pretty often, especially if I'm, you know, trying to, you know, figure out a process or something like that. Yeah. I feel like it sticks in my head better if I write it down versus typing it. Yeah. The action of your hand moving and your you know, brain thinking and, and spelling it out. And- yeah. I mean, I'm horrible at spelling and my penmanship is, you know, for the birds, but I mean, at least I get through it. I mean, I've seen worse. And- <laughs> I have like an entire bookshelf full of old journals and stuff like that that yep. I've written in over the years. And sometimes I just like going back through them, just kind of seeing what I was up to at that time, that moment in time and, you know, looking for bits and pieces of sort of like the breadcrumbs that I left behind for myself. And, I love, you know, going through that stuff and looking through it and kind of reminding myself of some of the things that I'd set out to do early in my life. Very good. What's your most important lesson learned? It's never too late. It's never too late. Like it's, we put this strain on ourselves about the past and the future. Like we can't change the past. We can't predict the future. We have to live in the present and it's never too late to do something that you want to do. Like sometimes people are like, I don't have enough time. Like you don't know that. I mean, nobody knows that. I mean, the the hardest thing in most journeys is the first step. Just the first step. Just get started. Instead of seeing this huge task in front of you, just wake up and do one, do it one day at a time. Just say, I'm just going to put my one foot in front of the next. That's it. You know, I mean, how do you walk a thousand miles one step at a time? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very true. Very true. I mean, we used to do these really long road marches in my first unit. And we would do them to commemorate the history of the unit. And it was a 25 mile road march. And I remember when I first got to the unit and they would tell me about, it's called the Manchu mile. And I remember I got to the unit. I'm like, how the heck do you guys do 25 miles? Like, I think the most I'd done, maybe like (laughs) 10 or 15 at the time, thinking 25 miles, that's, that's ridiculous. And the first one that we did that I did, I'm sorry, the first one that I did when I got there, they decided to, because I think it was like something like the 100th year commemorative one. So they actually made us do it. Usually they would do it on the base, 
but they made us do it off the base up near the DMZ and it ended up being closer to like 30 miles. <laughs> oh my gosh. It was in the mountains of next to North Korea on South Korea, like on the DMZ. And so oh. it was through the mountains. Yeah, it was crazy. And I remember thinking to myself when I finished, like that actually wasn't that bad. Like it was pretty, you know, it was rigorous, but you do it one step at a time, one mile at a time. And you go through this just kind of like peak and valley of emotions. And I look back on those times and it just reminds me like anytime I'm doing something really hard, that's taking a long time that, you know, it's just one mile at a time and you'll get through it. Very good. So why is your role now important to the future of the industry? Well, being a podcaster in the industry has been, you know, it's been a huge blessing because I get to meet and talk to a lot of people that are doing a lot of really interesting things that are solving, you know, problems that are going to really impact our energy industry in the future. So I get to learn a lot from them. And in my research and talking to them, I get to learn a lot. And I think it's really important that we continue to build around the narrative that, you know, energy is inclusive in the sense that, you know, it's not just oil and gas, but it's wind, it's solar, it's geothermal, it's, you know, wave technology, all of these things that are starting to really get a lot of momentum and that they are going to help complete the energy picture as a whole. And it's not just going to be, you know, oil and gas anymore. It's going to be all of these other forms of energy that are super important because we need them to, you know, in order to to really start to, you know, bring down the amount of of carbon emissions that are being put in the atmosphere, as well as, you know, just I mean, I have children, you have children, a lot of people in our industry have children. We want to leave, you know, the world behind for our not just our kids, but our grandkids. A legacy. Our great- yeah. Yeah. And I want to contribute to something that's meaningful. And I believe that podcasting, being able to tell these stories, being able to highlight these people, being able to share the work that they're doing with the community is super important, especially as we move forward. And, you know, we get to leave behind this digital footprint of information so that you know, when people come behind us later in in the world, they're going to look back and say, you know, these were some of the first people that were putting out digital content. They're creating content about energy in the form of podcasts. And, you know, there's a lot of us out here, but we're still, still like, we're all still tip of the iceberg right now. Well, and not only that, I really, I feel like we're helping changing the, the current perception of our industry by educating our audiences. For sure. That, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the renewable space. Yeah, that's coming, but it's going to coincide with the oil and gas industry. You can't make any of those things without oil and gas. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. So, so it's just educating people and by sharing the stories that we do that I feel yeah, we, like we, we don't, really we don't run around in like dark cloaks with evil daggers. Like, you know, <laughs> like we're not, you know, we're not out here like trying to, you know, just, you know, like, yeah, we're not screwed. We're just, duck, we're helping know? change the perception because of the lack of, I think, impact other companies have not made. Yeah, you know what I mean? Sure. Mm-hmm. Standing up for our industry is incredibly important and it's not as bad as everybody makes it out to be. Yeah, so, you can't demonize us. I mean, it's you know we've we've been around for a long time, and you know we've, we're not going actually, anywhere. Yeah, but we've also I mean we've we we do try and do a lot of good in the world as well. I mean, you look at well, some of these humanitarian it, projects that oil and gas companies have done around the world, and it's not just you know they've spent some pretty pennies on some of these humanitarian projects. 
Yeah, a lot of ESG and we're incredibly, you know, safety adverse because the moment something happens, it could take nothing and someone could be dead, you know, God forbid. Yeah. So what's your favorite podcast? Ooh, you know, I love, so it just ended, but I I loved the Talking Sopranos podcast for a while during the pandemic. It was great because I was- Oh, that's I, I cool. Am, I, didn't, I haven't heard of that one. I'm a huge Sopranos fan. And so watching, you know, getting to rewatch all the episodes and then listening to, like, there's two two cast members, Michael Imperioli, and I forget the other guy's name. So it was a guy that played, oh man, I forget his name in the in the role, but he played Christopher, I think, the nephew, and then the other guy played- Oh, Bobby, who was like this other guy, other character. Anyway, yeah, 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 yeah. Basically, they talk about each episode in detail, and they usually have like a guest on who was like either a writer, a producer, an actor, or something along those lines that had to do with the show. And they interview them, and then they go through all the scenes and they break down like what was happening and they analyze it. And it's super in depth and it's really, you know, analytical and, you know, it's really insightful and it's kind of, Brings me back to a time when when the show was actually running, and I remember watching it, and it was really interesting. And I mean, especially at the time, because I think you know, it was super. It was super edgy for its time, and right, have, yeah, it was have like a, have like a main character actually murder somebody on the show. It was like a big deal, and you know, so that was like at the height of I think of like some of HBO's best work. But I like that one. There's another one that I like called what is it? Snacks by Robin Hood. And it's 15 minutes, 12 minutes at the most. It's two, it's two people. And they're giving a lot of like just business insights on what's happened in the stock market. I love that one. There's another one called, oh, Tim Ferriss' actual podcast. He's got a great podcast where he brings on a lot of really great people that are, you know, like best in class in whatever industry that they work in. And so I like hearing about what they do. And there's another one called We Study Billionaires on Spotify that's really great where they talk about investments and people like they bring on people like Ray Dalio and they give a lot of really good insights about, you know, like what the finance world's looking like. And then, you know, I like, what else is there? I'm trying to think. Honestly, because I produce a podcast and I don't always get the luxury of listening to a lot of podcasts. <laughs> Boy, do I understand that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, what do they say? Like the carpenter lives in a shack, right? So yeah, you know, I don't always get to enjoy them, but when I'm in the car, I try to, but I'm also a big music person. So I just like listening to different types of music all the time. And, but you know, there's some podcasts out there that I definitely enjoy. Yeah. I'm a little podcast out. I mean, I'm doing two of these bad boys. So yeah. Yeah. So when you make them, it's like, I think there's actors that probably don't watch a lot of movies, right? Yeah, I think so. I feel like they do, but I feel that they probably should. I mean, they show up on the red carpet to watch their own stuff, or, <laughs> yeah. you know, but I mean, it's kind of a big some... deal. It's not like a big deal whenever we launch something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you know, if there's like episodes, like certain episodes of certain shows that really catch my attention, like if I hear a snippet of one on something or something like that, I may go give it a listen, especially if like I've got some driving to do, which obviously, which was really what I used to do a lot of is is I used to do a lot of driving, which is how I connected with Mark. Is because yeah, same to, here. To Oil and Gas this week. And so I'd listen to a lot of his podcasts when I was in the field in, in West Texas. But because I don't do that anymore, you know, I don't get a whole lot of opportunities to listen to a lot of podcasts. But I do try and catch them. And I do try and, and find, you know, like I said, little snippets of episodes here and there that I think that are interesting. And then 
if you know if I want to learn more, then I go learn more. Perfect. All right. Well, a couple announcements. As always, the last Thursday of every month, we have our industry mixer here at OGGN. It's always at the Canon. I think it's like 530 to 9 at the Canon West here in Houston. I think we're having an extra one for women with women offshore. We're partnering with them to honor International Women's Day. So in March, we'll have an extra industry mixer at the beginning of the month on the 10th from 6 to 9 at the Canon West Houston. So stay tuned for more information on that. And I'm sure that will be on the website. I believe the title of that is Break the Bias. So I'll be actually be moderating a panel for that. So come out, check it out. Let's support our women. Well, if people want to reach out to you, Jose, and or get to know more about energy scale ups, how might they go about doing so? Yeah. So the best way is just drop me a quick email at jose.solis at ogg.n. That's J-O-S-E dot S-O-L-I-Z as in Zulu at O-G-G-N.com. Or you can just check out the podcast or you can also find me on LinkedIn at Jose Solis. I'm pretty active there. So you can usually you know catch up with me there. And I'll leave links in the show notes for everybody to just click on it and get directly to you. All right. Well, that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.